Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, the podcast in which we talk about the culture we love that society sometimes makes us feel ashamed of. My name is Dolly Alderton, a.k.a. Teeny Deeny, the Eggy-Eyed Lady. And I'm your temporary host for this episode. And I'm joined by Wonder Woman for Depressed Girls, Caroline O'Donoghue. Hi. Hi. Oh my God, it sounded like you were presenting like Desert Island Discs or something. It was I know. So, <laughs> you're so BBC sometimes. I know, and that's why right before we started recording, I told Caroline that I cannot put headphones on during a record because I get too carried away with the own, my own velvetiness of my yeah. voice. Ooh. Seduced by my own timbre. <laughs> but we're not here to talk about that. Today we're talking, we're not even here to talk about anything that society makes us feel ashamed of because we're talking about your new novel, yeah. The Rachel Instant. Hi. It, oh, sorry. I have never felt more like I was taking advantage of our connection than now. <laughs> it very much goes both ways. Don't you worry about it. So The Rachel Instant is a coming of age novel, a platonic romantic comedy. Stop looking at me like that. <laughs> I feel like I'm on like front row <laughs> or the Waterstones podcast. <laughs> this is so funny. <laughs> I'm going to be really serious. Okay, okay. The Rachel Instant is a coming of age novel, a platonic romantic comedy, a treasure trove of nostalgia, a thrilling, compelling story about growing up, making mistakes, finding purpose and finding a community and finding a home. It made me cry a lot. Okay. I basically spent... <laughs> Okay, I spent the life. This is actually also really exciting because I've been saving this conversation and all yeah. my compliments for right now. Um, yeah, we haven't really talked about it at all. No. Like there was a couple of bits when you were like, "I'm laughing at this and I'm reading," it. and I was like, "Yay!" or whatever. But you, but then you kept saying like, "I'm I'm folding down pages. I'm yeah. highlighting bits. I'm saving it for mm. the the great reveal so we don't waste chat." And now I just feel like that's an unnecessary amount of pressure on you. <laughs> no, and also you will get overwhelmed. I think, but you can just look away at the table when okay. I'm being overly complimentary. If you okay. like, um, the last third of the book I told you I spent in weird on and off fits of tears for reasons when I reread it I'm still not entirely sure why other than your beautiful writing and how familiar um, and nostalgic the story felt I completely fell in love with the two main characters Rachel and James um, throughout the book it is such a fucking banger Thanks, man. It's such a brilliant novel. I'm so excited to get into it. And I'm excited to get into it because it's been, the lead up has been a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And when you wrote it, it was kind of like in the first couple of years of our friendship. Yeah, yeah. And there's a really interesting origin story with the Rachel incident because, first of all, we wrote it in lockdown. Mm -hmm. Um, Second of all, we wrote it in a very short period of time. Mm -hmm. And... There was also an, an entire other book that was terminated yeah, before. Yeah. So let's go through those. Tell me about what it was like writing it in lockdown. Okay. All right. Okay. 
I think you can't really tell the story about writing it in lockdown without first starting about the book that never was, mm. which was a book called Claire, mm. which like literally when we started becoming friends back in, you know, early 2019, mm-hmm. I think, um, I, it was like the I, the project I was like most fiendishly working on. And it was very much inspired by the time that I'd spent working at The Pool, mm. which was a feminist sort of lifestyle website that I worked for for about three and a half years. And... Um, you also, and that's kind of where you and I became aware of each other as well. You were like a freelancer. I was a staffer. Yeah. And um, I was always like familiar with you because like you were always the person when we had like a bad traffic day, like a bad website traffic day. We'd like reposted something that you had written for us already and be like, oh, that'll drag in a few. <laughs> to get us over like our targets for that week. We always like repost this article you wrote on a Friday just to get our numbers up for that week. Um. So, uh, yeah, no, so... I was really interested after that website tanked and uh, yeah, like the, the, the went out of business or whatever about the various intersections of like feminism and corporate feminism and what happens when you try and make something essentially a pure ideology and about changing the world that harnesses like the hope of young women mm. and also the dreams of every woman that's come before her and like, you know, second waivers and third waivers and like how how all these waves want for different things and what happens when you then, you know, form the sort of like girl bossy type culture or whatever that is you know, click-driven and profit-driven and can those two things coexist? And that was what Claire was going to be. It was going to be this kind of vaguely black mirror-y um, novel about, and it was based on a short story I had written a few years previous but had stayed in my head, about like these women, these three people working in this office and the the kind of the app that they were working on and was succeeding was this thing called Claire, which was that every every business it has like a Yelp score according to like how... Uh, woman friendly it is whether that's like you know there's tampons in the loo or like it's really good instagram lighting or they will throw people out of mm. the club if men are perving on you kind of thing and, ha- and this is how, how this app sort of changes the world and sometimes for the worse mm. and i was i was uh, soldiering on with it and adding uh thousands of words every week and i remember at one point at the very beginning of lockdown i actually used your flat Mm. Do you remember that? Yeah, when I you do. you were working on I don't I can't remember what was happening, but uh, yeah, I was like I can't write this book. It's because I'm so cooped up. It's because it's because and like my entire journey with writing that book past the first ten thousand words and like I don't want to I don't want to ruin anyone's dreams, but the first ten thousand words of a novel are the easiest ten thousand totally. words you will ever write because you're like filled with hope and molten golden inspiration. Yeah. But when you get past that, it can be a bit of a struggle and sometimes it's more of a struggle than others and I mm. kept thinking like it's because I'm cooped up with Gavin the dog it's because I need this because it's because, because and I kept doing these mad research things or going to your house or whatever and it was just not working and then it got to this point where I started to realize why it wasn't working which was that um, first of all that to write a novel that essentially had like a fundamental fundamental setting was an office yeah a kind of techno cynicism that felt wildly out of place in the context of a society that was falling apart and the only way any of us could connect with each other and love each exactly. other and yeah. organize our healthcare and yeah. organize our vaccinations was through our phones. Yeah, I think that's so true. Like it just suddenly felt not important as an issue to address. Yeah. 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 It felt really churlish and stupid. Yeah. Yeah. And not the point. And like, who cares if feminism is getting a bit corporate? Like, who gives a fuck? <laughs> And it just like there's nothing worse 
for a writer than when your work just feels even irrelevant to yourself. Yeah. There always comes a point after the fact when you've been promoting it for a year and a half, you're like, who cares? <laughs> like, well, when even the, the jury, while you're doing it, it feels fucking pointless. So anyway, that's a long intro to say that. No, I think it's really important yeah. that you say that because in the acknowledgements of your book, you, you say this was... Rachel has happened because you abandoned another book and it's a lesson in sometimes there's a real nobility in knowing when something isn't working but that you've learned a lot from and just shelving it and starting again like it takes a lot of bravery to do that have you ever done that yeah yeah I didn't get as far as you Claire you got quite far in which I think is incredibly brave but also I think what people don't talk about with those abandoned creative pursuits is that the best bits of it you inevitably absorb into other work that's and I've been thinking about that a lot because there was a character in Claire that has gone on to really inspire the um, character of Carrie in Rachel Mm. Vincent who we'll get to I'm sure Mm. Um, and and like I feel like all the psychological groundwork was laid over tens of thousands of words with that character and then the best bits of him were just taken and put into this character Um, but then you know my my editors a conversation I'm sure you're familiar with having come to being like you know, we, we've given you quite a long time to fulfil yeah. this contract you signed for us. Where's the bloody book? You know, this was February at this point. You and I were recording Sentimental in the City. Um, I had like a note in my phone about a girl who's living with her best friend who's closeted um, in Cork in 2010 because I always sort of thought, and I think you'll relate to this, where when I was living with my friend Ryan in my very early 20s. Um, And we lived together several times over our friendship. Um, Even when I was living it, I thought, this is cinema. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And you you obviously thought that as well, otherwise you wouldn't have written the book that you wrote, you know? Yeah. Of like thinking that this is important. I know it's not important to everybody else, but it's important to me and it's important to us. And even then, like I was looking at the, me and Ryan's like see friendship on Facebook Mm. the other day. And, uh, he we lived together for a year and then he moved to Swansea to do his masters and um even then we were contacting each other leaving big walls of text on each other's facebook walls of like quoted conversations that we'd had a year previously so, so bizarre even then you're mythologizing and i'm Don't sure know. you were the exact same I, I did exactly the same and i'm so interested with this book that it's so deeply nostalgic not just it is the most autobiographical thing that you've written, but even in, it's obviously also a work of fiction, just the nostalgia of that time, that nostalgia of being a young person, that nostalgia of being a student of house sharing. You're like a deeply un-nostalgic person. Like you don't, you're, I would say you're quite mistrusting of mythology and nostalgia. So what was it like to write a book where that was required of you? That's so interesting that you say that because it's a conversation you and I have all the time. Like, we've had it on this podcast before and like a, a long thing <laughs> during Runaway Bride episode. Yeah. But we always talk about nostalgia and I think lots of people think I'm this incredibly pro-nostalgia person because I do this podcast that's dedicated to to old pieces of culture and mm. how much I love them. And I feel like you sort of really get me in that I actually hate nostalgia. You do. I think you're very wary of it. I think yeah. you don't like the lies that it tells. Yeah, I do think, yeah, it's the thing that I always say when we're together is that when you're talking to me about something like nostalgia is brain damaged. Yeah, <laughs> like it yeah. wasn't that good, you know, yeah. that that whatever you're reflecting on. Um, and yeah, I, I 
loves celebrating older pieces of culture because especially from time periods that I was alive for like I go back to like the early noughties and that kind of stuff a lot I think because I feel more diagnostic than nostalgic like mm. I like seeing what was being poured into the soil that's so interesting you know yeah. which you talk about a lot with Rachel there's a period there's a bit in the book where Rachel's talking retrospectively about her own sexuality and her her, her own understanding of womanhood and femininity at that time and she's like very confused about it you know she like plays a lot of games with men and she kind of loves this idea of being this um like unknowable enigmatic woman while also being kind of desperate for validation and she says to be fair to myself during that period of time there was a lot of mixed messaging for women yeah and i i think i've been thinking about this a lot because like it's a weird thing of like being an Irish female writer right now because there's so because many you're not of us. Sally Rooney. <laughs> it's really awkward to not be Sally Rooney. I find it very embarrassing. <laughs> I wish you would be her. <laughs> you can cut that. No, it's funny. <laughs> Sorry, why is it, why yeah, is it strange yeah, to be an Irish? Top 10 Sally Rooney's who aren't Sally Rooney. Um, but, uh, but the thing of, um, obviously there's Sally, there's um, Nisha Dolan... Mm. Uh, Megan Nolan, like all, all, all just there's, there's a lot of us, yeah. and like um, ha- who have risen to the fore very quickly, and specifically of our generation, um, and they and there's loads I'm not naming, but um, how all of us seem to be very interested in the same themes, which is je- young female burgeoning sexuality, and I think part of the reason why that is is that, um, you know the thing with like horror movies where it's like themes in horror movies comes in waves. Like, for example, during the 50s when everyone was afraid of communism, all of the horror movies were about aliens. Do you know what I mean? And No, I didn't know that, but yeah. that's a very smart... Yeah. Yeah, and, and like during... Thanks. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I'm just thinking about what it was in the 90s because that was like the horror movie boom that I remember. Um, I can't remember the 90s right now, but in the noughties with like Hostel and Saw... Yeah. I think it's very much theorised that like it's like a post nine eleven thing of oh, like yeah, of set, sending young people off to die. Of course, and yeah. like how how much can we take in terms of envisioning the young and the innocent being mutilated in front of us, kind of thing. Mm. And I think that with Ireland specifically and Irish womanhood, there is this horror that is real that acts as a really good metaphor for all of female life, mm. which is that. We grew up with the rest of with all the culture that everybody else in the world in the Western world had. So like, you know, Paris Hilton and celebrity sex tapes and Playboy phone charms and crotchless shots and paparazzi and all that stuff. Um, but it didn't really come hand in hand with any sense of liberation because we were living in a world where birth control was really difficult to get. Mm. Um like the first time I got birth control, uh when I got the morning after pill, I think I was seventeen. And it was 80 euros and you had to get like an appointment and it was like a many stage process. And I had to go around to all my friends and ask them for a tenner, you know, Mm. like that's that's such a it was weird and it was shameful and it was expensive and it was difficult because Mm. that's how they wanted it to be. Yeah. And um, and, you know, obviously abortion wasn't legal. We were our we were constantly being told mythologies of the Magdalene laundries and all that kind of stuff. And what happens to young women and their sexuality when they're stupid with it. And so it's a weird crossroads to grow up in of having all this mass culture of raunch and sex and porn coming in, but also having 
living in a world that's barely moved out of a very conservative sexual culture and is in many ways still living in it. And I feel like that crossroads that was so, like, so visceral for Irish women is how women everywhere felt, but it wasn't as explicit, if you know what yes, I mean. Yes, yes, exactly. And that's something that I love so much about the backdrop of the 2010s in this book, is that it's not just, uh, David Nichols once said to me, that we, you've got to be careful when you're writing nostalgic sort of, quote-unquote, period pieces because you can get, like, space hopper syndrome. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> What does that mean? Characters just like look up and they're like, there's a space hopper or someone's like, you know, just like these totally gratuitous, like, everyone, look at what year we're in. He's so clever. Um, I know. But what I love about this is that the time period, as well as it's just like delicious, there are so many, you know, like the references to America's Next Top Model and (laughs) uh, indie bands and, you know, all these like very specific small things that feel very familiar. It's also... It also goes a, a long way to disc, to to understand Rachel's psychology of why she is the way she is because of the generation she is and because of the period she grew up in. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think I think we're all, I think you're probably a bit like that too, right? It's just probably buried as an English person. I mean, like it's probably just buried a bit deeper, mm. and maybe for Irish writers, it's more on the surface. But I mm. do think every single character in that novel is acting. Because acting the way they act and is the way they are because of the things that have been pumped into the soil mm. of of Ireland and of culture, you know? And did you, because we were both writing, I was writing about the 2010s during yeah. that period as well because I was writing everything I know about love. <laughs> I remember us being very carried away on the WhatsApps. Uh, but something that I did because I'm such a nostalgia whore and because I keep everything and because I'm so frightened of losing my memories in a way that is deranged and psychotic, as you know. Um, during that time... I did a lot of uh, going back and listening to certain music, going mm-hmm. back through old email chains. You mentioned going on your wall-to-wall with Ryan with Facebook. Yeah. Did you do anything to immerse yourself back into the specifics of that time? Definitely the music part, Yeah, right? And um, I think get uh, specifically the Irish indie bands of that time, who I could, you know, like, you know, Fight Like Apes or Bell X One or Ham Sandwich or... <laughs> You know, bands that you, you would know, but we're such a uh, a place and a time. For Is there really a around. band called Ham Sandwich? Yeah. <laughs> They're really famous. Are they? Yeah. <laughs> they should change the name. <laughs> Don't you think they should change the name? I think they should change their name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They've been going for so long. They were really famous for a while on Irish radio. <laughs> Mad. Yeah. Um, um, but, uh, but also, I am... Um, so a big part of the reason that I started writing at all was because so I was living with Ryan and for a while our, I feel bad actually because there's like we were also living with our friend Billy but there's complete Billy Billy erasure total Billy erasure <laughs> I'm sorry Billy was Billy a man or a woman a man right yeah and uh, half halfway through the the year he moved to Australia and never came back so I was like sorry well that's Billy's fault I'm sorry <laughs> yeah sorry you're out of the archive Billy <laughs> I still see him every now and then, you know, he's doing well. Uh, <laughs> Billy Brown erasure. Um, but uh, the, <laughs> the, yeah, um, so he moved to Australia. Ryan moved to Swansea. I was about a year and a half younger than everybody. So I was still in college and they had all finished. And so they were all going on doing things with their lives. 
so I had to move back home because there was nobody left to live with. Mm. And so I moved back into my parents' house and I was just going on Facebook every single day. Um, in my final year of university, no no real friends. Um, I, I had no friends at college. All of my friends were the people I'd met at work and then started living with. And then we had a big social circle that was basically based in the retail scene of Cork City. I never spoke to anybody at college. Mm. And um, then, so I was just on my own all the time. And seeing everybody do exciting things in like Sydney or Toronto or Wales. <laughs> and um, and, and I, I started blogging because I was like, I want to show everyone that I'm not just standing still. I'm doing yeah. things too. And so I started like being like funny online. <laughs> yeah. And then it kind of like it catapulted from there. But I, those blogs are all private now. But like I still have the logins and I can. <gasps> oh, my God. Why would you do that to I yourself? Know. But it was kind of great because there were bits there that I that I did steal and put straight into Rachel. Oh, of course. Now that you say that, of course, that would just be like the most yeah. useful. So useful. Like, yeah. Oh God, I can't even. Cause I, were you blogspot.com? Oh, I was blogspot.com. Yeah, I was as well. I cannot. I remember age like 25 deleting it and being like, you will never. For someone who is yeah. such a nostalgia person and he has a record of everything, I remember thinking, I absolutely need to forget everything I ever wrote on this oh, blog. Oh no. Yeah. It was what, like hundreds of thousands of words as well. Yeah. For no one. For no one. God, I find that very cute. I know. I know. It is very sweet. Um, I want to talk to you about men yeah. because I'm I'm so fascinated that you and I are very romantic about friendships between women, mm. about creative relationships between women. Um, scenes of graphic nature was very much the central relationship between two women. Mm. I obviously, all I do is write about bloody women. <laughs> you and I are, you know, the show that we talk about on this podcast is about the relationships between women. This book is so about men the the relationships with women and men Rachel has brothers she has the central uh, catalyst for all the drama I'm not going to give any spoilers yet mm. we're going to do a spoiler alert don't worry everyone don't get your little ninnies in a twist but the <laughs> central uh, catalyst is uh, Fred Byrne who is uh, Rachel's lecturer obviously the main love story is between Rachel and her closeted best friend James why do you hate women why did you <laughs> why did you go off women why do you hate feminism? Okay. What, what was it? Why did you want to populate a world with men and write about that for the first time? Yeah, and the and the dedication is to the men in my life, yeah. and it's to my dad and Gavin and Ryan, you know. Yeah, and um, it was it's so weird because I realised that um, this is my sixth book, so mm. I wrote two novels for adults and then a trilogy for teenagers. And the first book, Promising Young Women, it's like um, the story of like in a kind of a toxic work romance that goes wrong and sort of the view of heterosexuality in it is quite abysmal really and all the hope is from the friends right is like getting back to her friends or whatever female friendship female <laughs> friendship Caroline always very amused that that seems to have become an entire literary genre just female. women being friends with each other it's nice <laughs> I like it um, and then Scenes of Graphic Nature was, you know, a mystery book, but very much it was, you know, the the lead character was a lesbian woman and it was about a female friendship, you yeah. know, and, and, and all the complex, complexities of that. And then the trilogy, um, most of the characters are girls and the lead romantic figure is a non-binary person. And mm. so a lot of that relationship was about the thing of like, you know, a, a, a sort of a straight girl who's in a queer relationship, you know. Mm. And uh, then I realised, I was like, wow, I've gotten this far 
into my career and have never written about what it's like to be in love with and obsessed with men. Yeah. And I've been in love with and obsessed with men my whole life. Yeah. And like I I I'm I sort of got sick of this idea that we're supposed to have as like straight women of like we're in love with men in spite of ourselves mm. or as like some kind of punishment or curse and mm. like I mean yes like yeah, we all have that thing of like, God, like, wouldn't it be so much easier if da 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 kind of thing? But you know, we're feeling like slaves to our own attraction kind of thing. But I got sort of sick of this notion that like we would rather diagnose men as psychopaths than as human beings. Mm. <laughs> Where it's like, you know, what I really liked about Rachel's boyfriend in this, Carrie, um, is that he is somebody who like he's so easy to diagnose off the bat as like a fuck boy and yes sort of... through Rachel's eyes initially yeah. yeah totally and he definitely acts poorly mm. um but we later on in the book we see things more from his kind of perspective and we see that he's he's quite just insecure and didn't feel very needed or very loved or very wanted and mm. there's a difference between giving someone total praise and actually trusting them with your emotional life and they can tell mm. and it's not nice for them and they will pull away and Rachel is not self-aware enough to do or know these things and I wanted to write about that he wasn't a psychopath and he wasn't a fuckboy and he wasn't a ghoster he was just a human being with feelings you mm. know and, and similarly Dr. Byrne is very similar on paper to the character I wrote in Promising Young Women who's like a toxic boss kind of thing and both of them are doing this thing where they're you know trying to drink from the fountain of youth in order to stay young Yeah. but I I, I really wanted to live in Fred's head and be like he's just, just a man dealing with all the stuff that was pumped into the soil that made Rachel as well you know and I just wanted a male sympathising book you know and just also just gay men you know like the gay men have been a huge part of my life for a really long time and obviously Ryan is a huge person in my life and that that relationship the sort of the straight woman gay man thing is just often shown as being so one-dimensional and to me it's so multi-dimensional you know yeah. and actually the the magic of this book and everyone's favourite part of it will be getting swept away with that romance between James and Rachel, you know, you see their friendship start from nothing Mm. and you see they build this world of in-jokes that you fold us in on and there are these kind of layers and layers of familiarity. One of my favourite passages is at the beginning, they've moved in together and she... Rachel realises they've stumbled stumbled across their first in-joke, which oh, is yeah. Cecilia is playing on the speakers while yeah. they're unpacking and it gets stuck. So they, it just keeps playing on repeat. And Rachel says, by the 16th, Cecilia, James and I had given birth to our relationship and it wandered around the house like a sticky, curious foal. Mm. And I just like, I just think you've, it's like such mastery what you've done. It's such a delicate art to be able to, build something from nothing and for us to where where there is no like sexual drama at all between them and to bring us in on that like great growing organism which is a friendship built over a thousand moments some of which by the end are extremely dramatic but for the most part are about like eating together and shopping together and you know sharing the same space of a home yeah, and and what's really what's really nice about that? Obviously, I was like recounting a lot of, um, you know, what me and what it was like for me and Ryan when because that was like one of the first, like, real. Because obviously, I, I had very dear friends before that, and and you know, my my friend Mags, who I've known since I was six, and everything, and all that, and but like 
in terms of being like really swept away by yeah. like like the friendship version of a soldier looking across a bar and saying I'm going to marry that girl one day yes, do you know what I mean yes. like Ryan was my first version of that of yeah. like I am obsessed with the person I want to eat them mm. and I was I was recalling a lot of that but I was also experiencing that with you when I was writing it as well oh, <laughs> you know like we, we like we were I think people are always surprised when I tell them that we we have known each other of each other and seen each other socially for years but only yeah. really became friends in 2019 um, and you know we went we hung out a bit a lot in 2019 and then obviously lockdown hit but then you just became this person who like I spoke to every single day yeah. and the and the private jokes got so deep and so weird so quickly and like I think it happened for a lot of people in lockdown where it's yeah. like some people who you thought you'd be end up talking to every day you didn't end up talking to much that much at all and some mm. people who became this massive surprise mm. and like you know I just wanted to, yeah, I just looked across the bar and said, I'm going to marry that girl one day, you know? And well, I, I think that's why, like, it's it's one of the reasons that I kind of, I was so moved by this book. I did see, like, so many small moments of our, not just our friendship, but what that kind of friendship is that I don't think happens that often in a lifetime. Yeah. Where you, that across the bar thing and that thing of, like, building such an intricate and intense language with each other that it almost becomes the thing that's at the forefront of your brain the entire day. Like, I remember, we won't go into it because it is so boring and convoluted, even for us at this point, but there was an in-joke that we got particularly hooked on. (laughs) And um, we made ourselves almost ill from it. (laughs) Like, we had to have a, we had to have a ban, like, we had to not talk about, because there was something like, (laughs) and that's what I think, like, that's what I think you get so much between these two characters of, like, it's not even just like the secret language and the understanding they have of each other is not just about like silliness and camaraderie and having a laugh. It's about like a deep, deep understanding of each other's souls. Yeah. Of like the bit, if they were a cat, the bit on them that you stroke and they're just like, mm. like they just, <laughs> you know, that, that, that's actually quite, it's almost like, it's obviously not like erotic, but it's like, it's the closest thing to really, to enormous romance and, sexual electricity I think you can get platonically is like two people two peoples whose souls are talking to each other even when they're not talking yeah yeah that's so that's so beautiful and like I also wanted to do this thing of like you know when you're because I think I was really wary writing it that like reading reading or hearing about anybody else's private joke except your own I know but this is what I'm saying I don't know how you've done it because it's not it's like it's so difficult to do that yeah, I, I and you fucking nailed it. I was yeah, and and I think also you get this kind of view from outside characters that yeah. like oh it is insufferable to be around. <laughs> Actually, it's not that fun or funny if you're not directly in it. Um, but like, I wanted to create this sense of like you know when you're building a friendship with someone, particularly when you're building it really quickly. Um, you're sort of like two little birds building a nest and every every new private joke or new reference or new thing or new nickname is like a little branch or a little twig or whatever and it all mm. feels like nothing and bitty and just like mm. kind of thing and then you realise you've built something that can carry you and, and be a home and, yeah. and that's what happens with these characters like terrible things happen to them mm. and they really carry each other based on like what like nine months of living together and a load mm. of jokes about like like share you know mm. <laughs> like also something I loved is that thing of um, 
it gave me so much more awareness of how impenetrable that sort of living situation and that friendship is for people coming in on the outside. Like there's a point when they, uh, Rachel talks about when James would have boys to the house or Rachel yeah. would have people to the house and they would be, the, the boys would just be kind of bystanders looking completely baffled and confused while they like sing Bad Romance by Lady Gaga but they change the words to Bedromance because they have an ant infestation which is like <laughs> the funniest thing in the world to them and just like completely leaves everyone cold. Totally and you have to make the reader feel like they're in bedroom exactly, and, and everybody else is on the outside of it. Yeah, I think I told you, I'm sure my brother wouldn't mind me saying this, I think I told you when I first started reading the growing relationship between James and Rachel as housemates, I was reminded of my brother when he dated a girl and she lived with her gay best friend and they were like totally, you know, glued to each other and they were always telling really long stories to my brother. (laughs) (laughs) And and she once said, I think that we're going to be famous. And my brother was like, why? Why? I remember exactly where you were when we were when you told me that. Like we were by King's Cross Station, and I was still writing. I yeah. was still like early in first draft, and I was like, "Oh, she's really hit on something there." Because like I think there's this thing that happens, and there's a reason why gay men and straight women—it's like such a, a thing in our mm. culture. And if we think about any other kind of configuration of straight person plus queer person that's depicted in culture, whether it's like chasing Amy, like a, a straight man and a yeah. lesbian woman or whatever, it's all about the sex they may or may not have. Mm. But when you see straight women and gay men on screen together, we're all, we all know, we all know the vibe. Mm. We all know, you know, that Stanley Tucci is never going to get off with Anne Hathaway in the Devil's yeah, Prada. Like, yeah, we're yeah. never, when, or, or, what, or any of the other, like, you know, you know, My Best Friend's Wedding or, or any of those characters. Um, because we understand it because not only do we see it in so much culture, but we know people who are like that. We know friends who are like that or we're in a friendship that's like that. And I wanted to talk about the specificity of like, I think there's something in that re- in that relationship of like straight women or, or women generally, they have to like present so many faces to the world and yeah. especially when they're with boyfriends they can't be too needy they can't be too egotistical they can't be too too much of a fantasist I guess about mm. themselves or they can't regard themselves as beautiful or interesting because it's mm. up to the man to find you beautiful yes, or interesting yes exactly yes and if you become too self-aware they become repulsed by it yeah and even with female friends um, there's a sense of like you have to keep the sisterly camaraderie in check with various checks and balances and then gay men very frequently have to present a lot of faces to the world about, you know, how they need to sort of code switch and pass in different places for their own safety. And, you know, not even for safety, but just for like they're aware of being too camp or mm. having to you know dim themselves or whatever. And when you get a relationship where both those people can both drop all the faces that they have to show the world and also like paint a new face for each other of mm. like, what if we're famous? Mm. Like, what if we have a talk show? What mm. if like we're two Southern Bells? Do you mm. know what I mean? There's, I think there's something really beautiful in that. Yeah. And also, you know, I think that there's the fact that they end up sort of writing together as well is yeah. such a natural conclusion of those kinds of friendships in in my experience when you're younger totally yeah that they end up re- already as you said you know that they know that this is a really important moment of their life and it's something that should be 
recorded and shared. Right. So like, so James is a screenwriter, or he's a wannabe screenwriter. We find out very early on in the book that like, he's a successful screenwriter now. He lives in New York. He writes for a late night show. Um, and she and, and and Rachel's a writer too, but different. She's a she's a journalist. She works for a very small newspaper. Mm. She doesn't have huge aspirations, really. She's just kind of having a nice time with it. But when they were living together, they decided they were going to write a sitcom about their lives. Mm. And um, and th- there's some actually there's some text in there that's from the script that's yeah. actually written by my friend Tash Hodgson, who is a playwright. Oh, really? He's been on the podcast before and he's in Operation Mincemeat right now. Yeah, which is very, very good. <laughs> very, very good. Um, and, uh, yeah, what's funny about that is that, like, me and Ryan were also writing a sitcom about our lives yeah. while we were living together. Yeah. And now these characters so are... So believable to me. It's... And now I'm writing a script based on this yeah. <laughs> for a studio. <laughs> but also, what's um, what I loved about what I loved about Rachel looking back as a narrator as how old is she when she's narrating? I think she's 33, 34. Yeah, maybe. so our age. Yeah. And it felt so... I loved that... Like, I think you could only have written this book at the age that you are now, I yeah. think. Like, in your you know early 30s. You have to be so clear of your 20s to be able to write about them properly, I think. And... Rachel is, I just fell in love with Rachel because she is so, I identified with her so much at that age when she's reflecting on her younger self because she is so self-conscious and she is so um, crippled by how she presents to the world. You know, like when when she first moves into uh, the house with James, a tiny character detail that I think is so important is as she's unpacking, she's pretending she's on the Big Brother house. (laughs) And just seeing, like, thinking about what the nation would think of her. And whenever she, she's so aware of, like, Carrie, her boyfriend, like, whenever he mentions how he's spoken about her to other people, she becomes kind of fixated on this idea of, like, Rachel in absence. Like, what do people think of me when I'm not there? She's so aware of her body. She's always talking about her tallness and what she thinks is kind of her heft. And she's aware of, like, how, how she presents, you know, how feminine she is. Was that? because I obviously was writing about at the same time writing about myself as like a 24 year old how did you find that was it sad and uncomfortable to write a woman of that age going through those things um do you know I made a really talk of you (laughs) did you yeah 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 I just yeah I don't know just like even though you you don't really talk about being six foot I did for Grazia for all those years (laughs) for a cool 250 that was my thing I had to write about for quite a long time, is being tall. Do you just got it all over your system? Yeah. you never really talk about it now. No, you just also, you just accept it. Don't you get to a point where it's like, uh, what's the point in talking about this or dwelling on this? Or yeah, to, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I don't know, I, I, for some reason, I you not, not that I was I based any other characteristic about her on you at all, but I just really, I just really, whenever you spoke about being that tall as mm. a very young person mm. and like how sort of feeling kind of gangly and feeling like out of out of place or whatever that just that really inspired me for some reason and also I think I think she becomes quite fabulous when she's older she can't see yes it. yes she does she does become a bit fabulous and I and nobody she would ever think that about herself but I did sort of think about you a bit um and anyway but like going back and writing that yeah, writing a that, girl that age with that kind of uncertainty about herself, what was that like? I find it so fun. 
I found it really, really fun. Yeah. I think because I had read quite a few books at that point of like um, women of that age having quite miserable sex. Mm. And I'd written some. <laughs> Do you mm. know what I mean? Mm. Like Promising Young Women was very much a very young woman having a miserable sex life, but she felt compelled to have anyway kind of thing. And I just, something about Rachel's horniness. Oh, like so good. She's a bit, yeah, she's a bit dowdy and like her clothes don't really fit her properly. And um, I think she like, in that year that her and James are together, she probably puts on like a bit of a beer belly and like, mm. you know, she the, her, definitely doesn't buy new clothes. And so she's, I, th- I just, I sense her like bursting out of things. Her hair is never cut, but she's so horny and having just great sex and having a great time. Mm. And like, I what I really wanted this book to do because it's um the a woman in her 30s looking back in her early 20s and it's a past tense novel and I think the fact that it's a past tense novel really changes the the way it comes across because if these events were happening to her in a present tense point of view if you know she and we'll get to the the incident of the Rachel incident in a bit I think but um you know if she was living through this kind of trauma day to day it would be a re- kind of a maudlin book to read mm. and I think we would not feel as affectionately towards her as we do. But because she's looking back and we know she's fine. Mm. Like she's a journalist. She's in her 30s. She's married. She's having a baby. Like She's got a flat. Like It's all good. We don't have to feel panicked that it's going to go badly because totally. we know it turns out fine. Yes. And it kind of I wanted to really encourage the reader to feel as fond about their 22-year-old self mm. as Rachel does about herself, you know? Yeah. Like that feeling of like, I was a fucking idiot, but what a great pair of legs. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, I, can we just dwell on the horniness for one minute? Yes. Um, because that, she has like fairly depressing sex with her very, we get the tail end of a depressing relationship at the beginning yeah. of the book and then she moves in with James. James becomes the great love of her life. There's no real room for this poor boyfriend. Yeah. And then later she falls in love with Carrie and you really feel her going through that thing that I think happens to most women, if we're lucky, in our early 20s of like really like your own personal sexual revolution where you like finally understand how your body works and you Mm. finally relax and you finally are safe with someone to try things and it's like all this energy that's been pent up since you were like in my case quite a young age Mm. suddenly you have a place to unleash it that feels like a little safe playpen in this relationship and it's such a joy to read about that with her relationship with Carrie you know there's like a moment when like they, they do kind of it's like it's kinky, but it's like eccentric. It's not. Yeah. It's not dark. It's like silly and subversive, and and kind of soft as well as kind of being transgressive. Yeah, yeah. You're, it's just. It's like an absolute. It ma- it makes you really nostalgic for that period of coming into your sexuality. I think with someone. Oh, thank you. It was my favorite bit. Of yeah, it was I great. loved it because I I do know I I know exactly what you mean and I remember who that was for me so mm. clearly. Mm. Of some of, I had been having sex for years mm. and and there's a bit early on when she's she's shagging her her school boyfriend or whatever she's and she says you know this could be a great opportunity for me to say that I was sort of like gazing at the ceiling and sort of what he pounded away at me but like I was always on top. I couldn't get enough. I was always wailing away like a stock pig. Yeah. And if someone went up to that boyfriend now and said that Rachel Murray said you were a lousy lay, he would have laughed and told them to fuck off. Yeah. Because like all of my behaviour was the contrary. But I imagine, I remember myself at that age and, and most girls at that age, mm. you're, you're, at, you're, you're, you're really up for it. 
and you're really willing to try things, but it's almost like you're trying to dig yeah. and get to something. And and like then suddenly you meet that person and you just hit pay dirt and you're yeah. like, here it is, I found it. And then you are like a sick person. Yeah, and she goes mad. And there's one of the chapters opens in this really hot way where she's talking about Carrie and she says, the thing about us is that we were both really dirty and that we were yeah. both perverted and unclean. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of like says a little but actually says a lot which is they both were like yeah horny pervy experimental people but they also were like cozy domestic relaxed low-key people yeah so they were like they created this like cave of existence cave is the right word yeah it's so the right word yeah and like it's it's such a lucky strike if somebody that and maybe it can only happen this way if someone you feel comfortable with like have a laugh with and you're really young and they're also the first person that you discover great sex with. Mm. Like, and maybe it can only happen that way around. Mm. It's such, it's such a lucky strike, you know? And then when they break up the first time, it's why it sort of ruins her life. Well, it is. It's like coming off a drug. It is like coming off a drug. It's, it's yeah. you go into withdrawal. Yeah. Um, I just want to read you my favourite bit of sex because now that I've, I, I just want everyone to know, I'm sure so many writers listen to this so they will know like, Writing sex is so difficult. I hope this gets nominated for the Bad Sex Awards. <laughs> no, it I won't. I think the bit with the knife. Those people are such prudes. That they, they are prudes. They yeah, are yeah. prudes. They don't understand longing no, or desire I, at all. I, I think that... Um, it's so funny. I wanted to bring up the thing with the knife, but I thought yeah. out of context it might sound... It's like... Should we say what it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he... They're lying next to each other on the sofa yeah. and he takes a knife out and and very gently drags it along her thighs. And he asks, can I just like drag an, a knife along your body? Yeah. Very gently, I won't hurt you and you're totally safe with me. And just for the thrill of it, and she feels safe enough, she said, yeah. And as he does it, he just keeps saying to her, don't be scared, I'm not going to hurt you. And like, <laughs> yeah, I remember texting being like, I would have died <laughs> for my 23-year-old boyfriend to have done that for me. It's such a specific type of like yeah. deep deep safety that you get to like yeah. deep deep intimacy where it's just like what is it? it maybe some people just think we're disgusting saying this i just yeah my my mom messaged me about that and she was very worried and i just wrote back no comment i'm just gonna mm. say no comment here mm. now but <laughs> but i think what's important about that is that the knife it's like a like a big kitchen knife mm. that's on the table because they use it to crumble up a brick of hash yeah so it's not like he's keeping a knife no, in his backpack no. and he's like here's my special sex knife it's like it's very um it's a playpen it's improv do you yeah. know what I mean? it's yeah. like this will be interesting you yeah know? um i just want to read the, yeah so writing sex is just so difficult mm. and something that um you and i text well i text you quite a lot when i find myself stuck in a bit of a rut of a sex scene and I do find that they take me quite a long time they to They take write. a lot really long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're the hardest bit, I think. They're the hardest bit and something when you can when you can uh, what I now just think is good sex is what a good sex scene <laughs> is uh, when you can hit on something that feels thrilling and intimate and exciting but is also undercut with awareness and humour. So this is like my favourite passage of sex in the book when um, Kerry goes down on her for the first time. Mm -hmm. um, it was, as you know, not the first time a man had gone down on me, but this was not lying on my bed while a boy fidgeted about, my breasts getting cold as my mind became full of errands. 
obsessed with it. <laughs> For years straight, women talked about men never eating them out. And now that now that they do it all the time, none of us want to admit that most of them are bad at it. They suck her onto your clitoris like a fish at the side of a tank or they randomly poke about with their tongue. And then, so that's like the funny bit done. And then this is just uh, the hottest two sentences ever. With Carrie, I felt like a shrine. He was going at this, not like a person with a plan, but a person with a calling. Like, it's funny and it's so fit. And I just know how long that takes to write and how much yeah. how much brain arithmetic you have to do to create an atmosphere and how like much, that. It's, it's, almost, it's, all, it's actually just pruning, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because you wallop a load of words down on the page and it can be so... So like embarrassing to write. What is it about writing the word like clit? <laughs> like, well, you yeah, fingered my clit. I know. <laughs> so so awful. Well, you and I were texting recently because I was in a bit of a pickle about it with yeah, my yeah, latest yeah. novel because <laughs> I, I remember this. Yeah, because I was writing it as a, a man and writing mm. up sex through a male. Yeah, eyes was even harder than writing sex as a woman. And I remember just saying to you like, "There's just there's just a ban on." On words, any words for female anatomy, isn't there? That's yeah. just we can't. And you were like, no, you can't. You can't. I remember, no- I remember texting you, being like, "Have you tried her fingernails digging into his lapels?" And she's like, "Yeah, I, I I've have already the done that. I've done the lapels. <laughs> I've done the shoulders. I've done. We're now at the impasse of like pussy fanny, like yeah, what? Yeah. Where all of it sounds like a five-year-old. Pussy <laughs> fanny. It's like, yeah. Anyway." For fellow horn dogs, you've got to. It just, is horny. It's really horny. I'm really like, proud of how horny it, it is. It really is a very horny book. Should we get onto the spoiler section of the yes. chat now? Okay. Um, so at this point, we're going to disappear behind the beaded curtain of spoilers, and so <laughs> you can all <laughs> you can all just uh, pause it and go and read the book because we've given you loads now. That's yeah. very non-spoiler and very wow. I'm very impressed by you. Great interviewer. Thank you very much. The the book has a slow build of drama because there is this affair that is happening between James and Fred Byrne, Dr. Byrne, that mm. Rachel is kind of implicated it in because she's kind of covering it up. And then she ends up working with Dr. Byrne's wife. So she becomes feels even more kind of entangled in it. Mm-hmm. And that unravels and, and kind of builds in a way that is obviously very thrilling and then in that last third of the book it just goes turbo in terms Mm. of what those two kids basically have to deal with in a very short period of time which actually really not obviously these exact incidents but I actually now thinking about it I think it was the same with your 20s maybe it is a common thing that that happened to me in my 20s it was like we were plodding along and Mm -hmm. and dramatic things were happening on a micro scale and then suddenly we were thrust into very very grown up mm. things happening very mm. quickly in the period of a few years in our friendship group and it feels like so in a in the space of that last third Rachel gets pregnant yeah with Carrie with by Carrie um and and Carrie leaves Kerry leaves before he finds before before they know she's pregnant. Kerry has to leave because Kerry's Northern Ireland. He has to go back up to Derry to look after his mum who's dying. Who's dying? Yeah, she she and James have to hatch a plan of how she's going to terminate the pregnancy. Um, this obviously being Ireland, so therefore it's yeah. a more complicated procedure in terms of they have to go to England. They have to book an appointment and find a hotel, all the bits, all the stuff, um, and that costs about a grand. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Deanie finds out, thinks that she finds out about Fred's affair and thinks that it's with Rachel. Rachel. And um, 
Rachel goes along with the lie in order to get money out of them. So it's like a, se- yeah. it's like a series of incredibly dramatic things mm. that happens to James and Rachel. And you really feel when, when you're reading it of like there are moments when these these two people that have so wanted big cinematic stories in their life and their life to mean something suddenly feel so out of their depth. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it comes for everyone, doesn't it? It really does. Yeah. It, and they feel so vulnerable. And then you watch them intersect with these huge incidents and they suddenly have to age about five years in the space of... Yeah. And take control know. of, like, adult people as well. Yeah. Of, like... It's this horrible thing. I think it's the most horrible scene in the book where, you know, Deanie thinks that Rachel is shagging her husband and she can't believe the betrayal because Deanie, uh, Rachel has been in her house like three days a week with her all summer long kind of thing. She's her literary assistant or whatever. She's not paying her properly, which kind of has a sort of a resentment between the two of them. And she's sort of, Deanie thinks she's in like a Tudor course. She's like, mm. you found me your student mm. as an assistant and you've been shagging her. And she, the reason that Deanie thinks that they're shagging, I really hope people post, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> really hope people adhere to the beaded curtain rule. Um, the, is because I think you have to talk about this section. I know, because yeah. what's, what's great is I won't have an opportunity to talk about this anywhere else. Yeah, until, yeah, exactly. Maybe for, for until a few years when it's out in paperback yeah. and I can talk about it in a spoilery way. So it's actually lovely to do this. Um, and Deanie sees a bill. She so yeah. So Doctor Byrne feels bad that he's like she's trying to he's trying to show commitment to James because they've been shagging for months now, and he does this by like sending them like big shop Tesco orders to their house because he doesn't like he almost like doesn't trust James with money because he knows he'll spend it all on drink and he mm. wants to go and their flat to be nice for him and there to be like lots of wine and smoked salmon <laughs> around yeah. the place, and so he's sending shops to. Rachel and James's house. Deanie finds the bills, thinks it's Rachel, has no idea who James is, obviously, and then puts it together from there. And it's this moment where the confrontation happens and Rachel is just looking at Dr. Byrne, who's like the the only real adult figure in her life are these two people because she's not really talking to her parents at the moment. Mm. And he's this huge person and he's this huge figure on campus and he's like so interesting and sexy and cool and weird and and he's just at a loss he has like he, he's just like looking at the ground yeah he, and, and she realizes like oh you would rather be disgraced for being like a sociopath who like sleeps with his student and brings her into his wife's employ than be correctly be. identified as a bisexual man yeah and it's she can't believe the weakness in it mm. and it's just like she's like and then she just realizes she has to take control of the situation that she needs money that she can't unfuck the situation so she, all she can do is she says give me two grand yeah you know, and you've touched on this earlier, but something that I again think is is such good reason why you wrote this book in the age that you are, because the age that you are is probably bang in between Doctor Byrne and Rachel. Rachel. Yeah, yeah, and it feels and same age as Deanie. Yeah, same age as Deanie, and it feels like you you're you don't deliver as a author through Rachel's narration. You don't deliver any enormous judgment on Deanie and Fred and their behaviour. It feels like you really, um, as a reader, you really empathise in the mess that Fred is in and the lie that he's living and the frustrations that Deanie's feeling about her marriage as well as the gross betrayal and mistreatment of these young people. Like, you feel sorry for everyone. Yeah, and also the thing of, like, 
Rachel and Deanie had this real relationship between each other. That it wasn't the deepest relationship in the book, but it was mm. Deanie's really the only other woman in the book. Um, and, and that's gone and it's not their fault. Like, it's mm. no one's fault. Mm. And um, yeah, I, it's hard. And I think the the worst part of it is that like, when that week is happening, where it's like, you know, the pregnancy, the money, the the betrayal, all this, it's almost, you can feel her and James like white knuckling their way through it mm. in the way that you do. But really it's afterwards that it, things become unbearable mm. because Carrie doesn't come back. They break up for good, we think. And uh, then um, she gets some bar work and like, it's like during the Christmas period and all these girls from her course are coming up to her because by this point it's gotten around school that she shagged Dr. Byrne. And she just feels like everywhere she goes in Cork, because Cork is that small. Mm. There's um, a great description of it where you say it is beautiful and anarchic, but you can fit it on a pinhead. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how it, that's how it still is, yeah. you know. Um, and yeah, and, and she just feels this shame everywhere she goes. And like... For me, that felt like a dramatization of like how it felt to be in. I've talked about this podcast before with you. Yeah, that's how it felt to grow up in a small town, to date really young, to then go to university in that town, mm. and and so really have this feel like by the age of twenty, like you're this fucking chewed up old tart, you yeah. know, and that like everyone's got a little story about you, and mm. and that you have to get out at any cost, you mm. know. Even though I didn't really, do, I didn't do anything bad. No. I just was someone who was curious and excited, you know? And that felt like a a way of, like, making a horror movie out of real experiences, almost. And that's as well when the small cityness of the backdrop works so well because you get this real Bonnie and Clyde sense with James and Rachel near the end of the book of, like, we've got to get out of this town. Yeah, yeah. Like, you really, really feel that by the end in a way that it's, like it's this huge fire underneath them like the paranoia and the claustrophobia and the shame of that place of that small place that they've got to get out yeah and it, how it started so beautifully mm. for them you know and then it just kind of folds in and sours and darkens and mm. yeah and then the kind of final betrayal is the final incident is like they don't even get out together you mm. know which I find very sad <laughs> I find it so sad. Hey, I, I could not... I told you there were these like certain lines that have stayed in my head. One of them is, we split the money and run. Mm-hmm. For some reason, just like got me. And then I tell you the other bit that got me uh, near the end of the book, which is, you know, we haven't really talked about James enough, but James is like this, when we first meet him, in the same way that we see Carrie through Rachel's eyes, and he's kind of, you know, this remote... Um, distance, difficult man, and then we find out really what he was going through mm. later on in the book. When we first meet James, he's this like psychotically charismatic, mm-hmm. beautiful, hilarious, sparkling, uh, you know, like firework of a person, like kind of it boy. Like you so could see why you would fall in love with that boy. Um, and then as time goes on, and particularly in this period of these very dramatic incidents happen, you just like peel away these layers of this person who's actually like deeply traumatized and incredibly yeah. vulnerable yeah yeah and that's just i mean i hope he i know he'd be okay with this but um that's ryan yeah <laughs> and i know you, you guys you haven't like hung out with him that much although he's coming tonight yeah. um but uh i remember that like if when we were working in the hmv together me and ryan like 
if anyone would say of all of these 30 people who work in this building who's going to be like big and famous um they would say Ryan mm. and Ryan is often mistaken for famous people when we're out mm. like annoyingly people think he's James Corden that's not right which he <laughs> hates he hates it yeah he really hates it um and sometimes Alan Carr he doesn't look like anything I know, like either I know. of those people I don't know but he is very charming so maybe he just seems like someone who's on television yeah, he, that's who does a chat show that's just yeah. what he seems like. He just seems like someone who, who should have a chat show. Yeah. And um and he and yeah, when I met him he just sort of exploded my life and yeah, I just needed to be with him all the time. Mm. And then, you know, every single time he would tell me something about his life, it was like I can't believe like this person is so fabulous and glamorous and so exciting and sparkly also has like a Frank McCourt background. Do you mm, mean like, mm. the, and I think so, I was just so sheltered. Like I had never really met anyone at that age of my life, like age 20 or whatever, who came from like a non, like very middle class background. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I think it was like, it was huge for me because also, you know, the country was going through this recession. Everybody I knew, like I finished school in 2008 and that year, my all girls um, sort of private school or whatever, the class shrank, the year shrank from 60 people to 20 people. Mm. And that's, that shows you how God. much that class was decimated by yeah. the recession. You know, people just could not afford the fucking tuition anymore, mm. you know? Mm. And um, that, I think, and I'm only realising it now, years later, it really turn my worldview upside down at the best possible time that mm. you could be turned up when you're 18 kind of thing of realising that like money is not a thing that just you know good hardworking people have and all our parents worked hard and now and it's, like, it's this thing of like okay if everyone I know's parents is like going through some level of struggle because of this thing that they can't control and they and all of them were encouraged to speculate and all of them were encouraged to invest in businesses and all of them were punished for that by the same system that encouraged them. Yeah. So we must now arrive at the conclusion at, at 20 years old that it money is not an automatic consequence of people who are nice and work hard. Mm. Money is like insidious and weird and unfair and goes to different people for different reasons. And that's all of life and everything. Yeah. But money is the way we judge it the most. Yeah. And so finally, like I was working a lot of hours, you know, finally meeting people from different walks of life, being in retail, it sort of upended things and like Ryan was the most dramatic version of that. Mm. Like people can come from insane backgrounds and still be not remotely worth pitying, you know? Mm. And it takes Rachel a while to really understand that, like to really unpeel. She so wants him to be yeah, this dazzling person that it takes her a while to really understand the difficulties he's gone through and the difficult relationship he has with himself. Like the fact that she sees him as so lovable and really the the reputation he has with himself is that he's not like a normal person yeah. and that's why he could have a relationship with his married ostensibly straight mm-hmm. older professor who buys them <laughs> big shops yeah. to keep it secret is because he's not like a normal lovable person yeah and actually this is the bit i was going to read because this is the bit that made me cry the most okay. is um it's the bit that just undid me is uh James saying to Rachel, I just don't think I'm one of those people that gets to be happy in this area. 
people like me, I'm funny, I can write jokes, I can always get laid, I can always make a living, I can always get a job. That's a lot, you know, that's a lot for one person to have. I think it's okay if I never get to have romantic love. And then Rachel says, I was so insecure then, I never thought that someone could have an insecurity that I myself hadn't thought of. James was sure he was an unlovable person. And then Rachel says, I just think you're someone who wants a non-standard life. I think you want to have this big, huge, exceptional life and you're probably going to have a huge, big, exceptional love that goes with it. Oh, I feel so moved reading that. (laughs) You know, we had that exact conversation. I know, I know, we had that exact conversation. We had that exact, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I just think it's... um, I love you. I love you. I just I just think it's such a beautiful exchange. I think it unlocks so much about that character. And I just think as well, like, the idea that Rachel can know him so well. They've lived in each other's pockets. But he has this secret belief about himself that, you know, he won't tell anyone. Oh, my God, can't believe I'm making this funny. <laughs> it's just an incredibly poignant thing. You know, you still... Occasionally in very, very long, very intense conversations, you can still have these moments with someone where you go, oh, this is what you think about yourself. Or this yeah, is something yeah. I didn't know that you, this is your reputation with yourself. Yeah. And there's nothing that you as a friend can really do or say to convince them otherwise. And it happened, it can happen years down the line with people who love each other. Yeah. Yeah, I... Can I can I talk about that conversation that we had? Yeah, that that it was kind of verbatim, tra- yeah. translated into this book. Of um, yeah, I I remember you saying that to me. I remember we were on your couch and you were like, "I just don't think I'm going to get it. I'm, I think I got a lot, and that's enough." Mm. And it was again, it was one of it was the exact same reaction that Rachel had, which was like, "I can't believe there's an insecurity I haven't thought of," kind mm. of thing, and um. Of being like, uh, the easiest thing a woman can do is get married. Mm. The easiest thing a woman can do is be with like, find an okay guy to be have an okay life with. Mm. And I was just like, she's that's never going to be enough for her. Like, she needs something extraordinary. Like, yeah, she needs somebody who can like, sort of, you know, write her songs and like hold her hand the day her dad dies. You know what I mean? Mm. Like she, like like you need all of it, and you've always you've never settled for anything less than magnificent in your life. And like, why would that be any different in romance? You know, and and it was so clear to me, but it was so insane that it wasn't clear to you. Mm. You know, I love you. I love you. <laughs> um, <laughs> this book is like such a such a wild ride in terms of the. The twists and turns of it, and it's it's obviously, as you can tell, I found it, um, I found it deeply moving in places. It's incredibly truthful. It's really really funny. There's huge, you know, it's thrilling. There's lots of unexpected twists and turns. It's a lot to pack into a book. It's like, yeah. and it's in a book of ideas. You know, we haven't even got into all the issues that you folded no, we don't into. Need to. We we don't, don't, we're need talking to. about themes in our day. <laughs> but you know, there's stuff, there's so much stuff about privilege and fortune in there. There's a, you know, there's obviously a lot about. Um, abortion. There's a lot. There's a lot about you know uh, the ethics of unpaid internships. So it's like this is it, like you get a lot for your money with this book. There's a huge <laughs> amount in it, and there's also this like delicious dialogue that feels like you're watching the best movie ever. Which hopefully we will. We know we will at some point. Um, and 
the other thing that it does, which is, is really, really difficult to do in a book, is that it has a really happy ending. Yeah. it's And that is hard. It's so easy to be ambiguous and to replicate life in mm. its ambiguity and uncertainty and unsatisfac- with an unsatisfactory ending. And you do two things that just make, well, three things that just make it so satisfying. The first that I want to talk about is Rachel and Deanie get to have the conversation that yeah. so many of us never get to have with people that have misunderstood us and uh, yeah. under- have believed a false story about us. The two of them get to say their piece and... Rachel gets to say, this is what happened, this is the truth. Yeah. And they get to, why did you choose to do that? Okay, do you know what? I always, yeah, I knew that it was going to end with talking to Deanie again. Mm. But actually, who came up with the, I was like, I, I, I like, there has to be like Deanie discovering the truth at some point that has to be dealt with. Like, it can't just be this open thing that goes on forever. And also, Dini has to have an okay ending too, you know. Mm. Like, like it's complicated because, like, there's all this stuff with Fred's health, and mm. she essentially becomes his carer, but not his partner, mm. which is like a thing that happens to people. And yeah. life is complicated and long and weird. Um, but like the idea that she would go on forever thinking that Rachel had sex with her husband mm. was unbearable to me. Um, and then I, I, I played with all these ideas, and some of them were really hammy. Like, what if you know? What if in Fred's coma, he's saying James's name or something? Mm. And mm. I remember talking about to Ella Lodes and she was like, no, she it should just be in the tenor of how he speaks about her. Mm. And that's the thing where, where Deanie... God, that's so smart. It's so clever. She's so clever. Her, she's, her she's novel's going to be amazing. She's given you notes on like every draft of Rachel, hasn't yeah, she? Yeah, yeah. She has, she's always been my like first reader. Mm. That's such a good note. It's such a good note because it feels so realistic that reveal when you're reading it. Yeah, and what and what, uh, what Deanie says is like, you know, it's almost because he was so fond of you, like the way he talked about, and which is also you know that thing of being obsessed with how people talk about when you're not around because your identity is so unformed when you're that age. Um, of like he, he, him saying like you know Rachel's a great girl Rachel's going places and he's like she, he's like he wouldn't have spoken that way about you if he was fucking you and mm. and and she kind of realizes that it's just it's just not right and then the kind of the very last sentence is you know Rachel saying like yeah it wasn't me and it was somebody else and it's not my story to tell. And then she writes down James's sort of phone number and gives it to Deanie and says, my best friend James is a writer who lives in New York. And um, what I what I really loved about writing that was that um, so much of like the way we've seen those two characters interact in this entire novel is like they're glued together. They're this like symbiotic cell to the point where even when Rachel is accused of James's crimes she takes them because she kind of says well what's the point like I I ate the food I drank the wine Mm. we we did all this together in a way Mm. I sort of am culpable and like the idea that you can still be soulmates with somebody but also experience a healthy separation Mm. of like this is my bit of the story that is their bit of the story and Mm. I can't comment on that bit of the story because I wasn't I'm just the Rachel part of the Rachel incident you you have to go to James for the James incident Um, and so yeah I I really loved writing that I was really Mm. pleased to leave it there yeah I was just very happy they got back together (laughs) it's very it's very satisfying and then and then obviously the other the other very satisfying thing that you do which is hugely hopeful and deeply romantic and takes like quite a leap of faith so it's a testament to your writing that I read it and I not only believed it but I was rooting for it which is 
Kerry and Rachel have a meet cute back in London where yeah. he is her physiotherapist. Yeah. And then uh, they spend some time together and then he they're both single. He kisses her and it's this incredibly romantic metaphor where she said kissing him felt like leaving the, leaving a flat I was I've lived in for years and remembering that I'd found my like, remembering my favourite boots were under the bed and like yeah. I found my favourite boots and it's like oh I loved these I can't believe I've been living without these I'm so glad I've got them back again yeah. and and then they have a baby together yeah and that's it's it's brave to write a romantic heterosexual romantic story that ends with that kind of optimism yeah, it's weirdly quite strange now to have a story. It that is, ends isn't like it? Yeah. yeah, it has to be. And she found herself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Um, the Alderton special. <laughs> but like, yeah, because it does feel like oddly cringe to give people like, uh, you know, going off into the sunset sort yeah. of moment. And, and it's hard. It's really hard to do. It has, it has to yeah. be really like well earned. And it felt it really did. It just felt like this is exactly where I want both of them to be. But like, do you ever do this thing where you're writing and you realise you've left yourself your own clues kind of thing? Mm. Where you add little details as you're writing and you don't really know why you're adding them. Like for some reason it was very important to me early on that, and before I even knew, because I was writing, I didn't plan very much. I was just sort of writing kind of instinctually that Kerry was the youngest of a big family, that his parents were far older and so he was dealing with that kind of vibe. And that also the reason he was like 27 and still sort of aimless and had never finished a college course and was just sort of drifting, but very charming and nice to be around was that he had like a childhood illness. Mm. And uh, and I, I had a friend who grew up when I was in primary school or secondary school who grew up with lupus and, you know, the, the way it manifested in her was kind of uh, a lot of joint pain, arthritic sort of like symptoms and that kind of stuff. And so I just very, I was like, yeah, I think that makes sense for him. It makes mm. sense. Also, his disappearances make a lot of sense if he's just like physically fucking exhausted and in pain. But also, he's a 27-year-old guy. He's not going to talk to his girlfriend about that yeah. either. And so that was like, okay, that's nice. And I like it. And it feels kind of interesting and unusual enough that this character is not just like a paint-by-numbers yes. or a fuckboy or whatever. And then when I got back round, I was like, where is Carrie now? And I was realised that, like, he's caring for an elderly parent. He, like, you know, has all these kind of symptoms that would flare up or whatever. Like, the kind of get, getting him into physio, physiotherapy and then have Rachel becoming a journalist and her needing a physiotherapist because of her carpal tunnel mm. that she's inflamed by writing about the abortion <laughs> referendum as a moonlighting freelancer. Yeah. <laughs> and so they meet in 2018, which is the uh, the when Repeal the Eighth went through. Yeah. And I think it's something very satisfying that she meets him during that year of her life where she's process- she's been processing all this kind of really heavy stuff and this thing that's followed her around for years and then she just got, collides back with him again and it felt just very nice. Mm. Yeah, it's really Very neat. symmetrical. Yeah, very yeah. symmetrical and neat and it's thematic in a way that is unlaboured and it just feels like... I think it's nice, you know, sometimes life does work out. That's yeah. the thing, like, sometimes it's it's not as widely reported but sometimes you look at a year of your life and you go, oh, everything changed. Everything yeah. changed and everything made sense and all the dots joined up and that person came back in and that person left yeah. and that new chapter of my life began. It doesn't happen loads in a person's life, but it does sometimes. It and does, I like yeah. I like reading about it. And also I love that I was just so nervous that the two of them 
were going to end up as very, very distant friends. Rachel and James were going to end up yeah. as remote and distant friends. And it's it's um, that last line, I just wanted to punch the air when when Rachel says, my, my best friend's called James Devlin. He lives in New York and he's a writer because that's, it's like the whole heart of the book, isn't it? And it's so yeah. reassuring to know that these two people even though they're not living together anymore, that they lived through this incredibly formative period of their lives that changed each other forever. And they will be best friends forever. Yeah, they will be. Mm. And like, I, I like her having these moments where she sees them on Instagram with Jenny Slate and, she, <laughs> and she's like, you have a new best friend now. <laughs> it's kind of what it's like to be friends with you. <laughs> And on that note. And on that note. Oh my the God. The Rachel incident is a fucking banger. I can't wait to reread it again. I love it and I love you. I love you. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you for writing this. Aww. 